Joel Swisson on the fishbowl. Welcome. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to swim in the bowl with me. Yes, I hope I don't drown. You know, life-saving, right? Right, right. I, I, uh, well, let's hope the temperature is just right, just in case. <laughs> right. Awesome, awesome. First, I just have to say that um, I'm like a huge, huge fan of your work. Oh. I grew up watching all the stuff that you know you, you produced, wrote, and directed. I I actually went to school for screenwriting at Point Park University here in uh, Pittsburgh, and my whole like style of what I like to write and stuff. You know, I have a lot of inspirations, and a lot of the stuff that you've worked on uh, has been a huge huge like impact and um and inspiration for a lot of the stuff that I'm, I'm currently trying to write and you know get into production and stuff you know i'm really glad you said that sam because i've done a few films over the years but the thing that i'm most proud of is those people who from whatever association or contact or involvement in productions or on the periphery that actually used whatever they could gather from whatever I was doing and we were doing to actually forward their careers. And some of them are like just doing incredible stuff that dwarfs my, my work. And that's, that's in a way even cooler because you feel like you're a part of building something more permanent than just a movie that, you know, comes and goes. Careers are everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was reading, I'm not going to quote you correctly on this, but (laughs) you said something um, about how it's like you want to make movies that aren't necessarily going to be instant classics, but they'll hold their place in time for, like, I guess the genre of, like, the type of film that they are. Yeah. And I think I'm close to what you said. Yeah, it's a more elegant way of phrasing what I had probably said, which is the kinds of movies in general, and many of the ones I've made, you know, in the genre field in particular, you know, you do your best work and they can be really entertaining, but it's like being a journalist for a national newspaper. You know, you write something, they read it, next morning and then that's it 10 years from now you're not going to be looking back unless you're an archivist on what the new york times wrote about an incident that happened in 2021 you know right right and so you're always marching onward yeah absolutely and and that that stuck with me because my biggest heroes um of, of like you know the horror icons of the the 70s 80s and 90s are the people who did like you know, the, the B-grade stuff, you know, that that mm. is, is really, like, a lot of it was, like, looked down upon back then. And to me, those are the movies that kind of hold up today where, in a lot of ways, the current mainstream horror genre is it's coming back in a big way, but um, we're also kind of lacking, you know, a lot of originality because... You know, everything is they're they're trying to like reboot every horror yeah. franchise that was from the the eighties. You know, everybody's and, yeah, absolutely. And you know, they're just go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I was gonna say personally, I think there's so many people with ideas like myself that those were great when they had their run, but you know, major studios like. You know, like, I love Blumhouse, 
Um, I, I think yeah, Blumhouse right. is is really like dominating um, the the horror genre yeah. right now. But um, I would prefer if they'd you know stop doing more Halloween movies and start greenlighting stuff that people want to see. That's like you know original stuff that can clearly be inspired by all that stuff from the 80s because pretty much like you know I'm, I'm in my early 30s pretty much everyone that is getting into screenwriting and, and producing and coming up in Hollywood now is all in their like either late 20s or 30s 40s-esque and you know they all grew up with you know the 80s stuff but there's plenty of people that have original ideas for you know, a new slasher franchise or, you know, a new vampire franchise or, you know, some monster thing. And, you know, instead of, like, just repeating the same stuff because they feel that, I guess, it's safe and, you know, they, they can, you know, cash money on it. I think and a lot of other people would like to see new stuff come out. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's the saddest part of the game, not just in the genre world, but in films in general, is this whole, I want something absolutely unique and never before seen and different and something people are going to talk about that, that changes the game and all this stuff. And you know, what's this like? How do I know it's going to make money? And <laughs> going, what it's like is nothing. That's uh, why I'm giving it to make into a movie, you know, and it's, it's the same thing. I think it, as long as films are being dominated by profit, you know, you're you're going to have that to confront. It's different in one sense, which I kind of wish I had this in one way, in one way not. Back when I got started, which is the ubiquity of the equipment that you need to make a movie now. You can make one on your your iPhone, you know, and that's a game changer for people who believe in the strength of an idea because. You know, if you can just make a 20 minute, what do we call a sizzler reel, a film scene or two or a compression of the movie that you ultimately want to make and you can showcase that difference, that idea, that creativity, it may not necessarily be what winds up on screen making money, but it will get you in the door to pitch your film to people who can make it happen. So you have that ability to make an idea real that in a way I couldn't have done back in, in my beginning without spending an incredible amount of money. And so I say to everybody, look at film now as what typewriters did for novelists back in the 19th century. It just opened up a world that now everybody, all you have to buy is a typewriter. Now the ideas are king, not your uncle's money, not the studio exec who you're, you're you know, related to or extorting or whatever it is it's all about your ideas awesome awesome yeah i definitely agree with that a lot of doors have opened for filmmakers and like youtube has and social media has like allowed you know a lot of different people to never before do something can mm -hmm. now have have an outlet to advertise themselves promote themselves make something of themselves and it's really like a cool age that we're living in, despite, you know, the, the bad, you know, chaos stuff that's going on. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, you even say the word chaos and I start coughing with fake COVID, <laughs> but the difficult thing that you're facing as a younger filmmaker, and I am too, as a guy who's still trying to scratch out a few more films before I hang up my spurs, is the fact that, you know, when I started around 1985, I remember, uh, an article in the New York Times that said 
They counted 50 independent feature films made in 1985. And that number is now over 20,000. And so, you know, on the one hand, everybody's got more access. And on the other hand, everybody's got more access. And so you're up against that. But then there are, as you say, like YouTube and God knows how many other outlets for expression along with the mainstream one. So everybody's got their challenges going forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. I definitely wanted to uh, talk about some of your work and kind of hear some insights if possible. Sure. The first question that actually I, I wanted to ask you is, what got you interested in film? I was looking to follow in my father's footsteps as a fine artist and commercial artist. And I went to art school and went along that trajectory and then kind of drifted into animation, thinking that sort of cool, you know, art at 24 frames a second until I got into this Disney inter internship program where I realized I was going to have to be the guy hunched over a light table, scratching out all those all those pictures. And then just, that's just too draining for me. That's sweatshop work. And, and you click a button on a film camera and lo and behold, all those images come roaring through without you lifting a finger. And so, um, so yeah, I ended up just looking at film as motion art and always wanted to be a cinematographer as a result and sort of as luck and you know the currents of career would take you i just went in another direction several different directions very cool very cool you were starting to talk about some of your work in uh the 80s and um one of the films that i wanted to ask you about was bill and ted's excellent adventure mm -hmm. yeah that was one of those disposable napkins that actually stuck around for a while yeah. How did that project come about? And That was a case where, you know, the idea, like I was mentioning earlier, is king. It was truly a unique story. And I had a development guy named Mike Petzl at the time who brought it to me and, and said, like, this is just such an awesome story. And, and, you know, it was of its time. And kind of if, that's why I thought it wouldn't linger, because it was so much a cultural moment. But I think people are sort of digging it in a sort of a whole new way now but it was you know this wonderful celebration of stupidity and um and at the time i was the age of the of the of the people in the in the story primarily and and getting it getting the humor getting the genial countercultural you know humor of it and the people that i worked for at the time were all executives my age uh that i am now and um you know i remember the first time we screened the film there wasn't a single laugh not a smile not anything i mean they really did not get it at all and only because a company came along and bought it for a fire sale like nothing they took it and they tested it in front of a real audience which you know the original film uh company had no intention of even bothering to do and it tested through the roof it was just one of those just lightning in a bottle moment and it's so, I'm sure you, you notice it in your own experiences of working on films and seeing other people's films, is that how you feel about a movie is completely influenced by whoever you're sitting next to. And when I was sitting next to a bunch of dour old executives just restlessly groaning in their seats, I hated it. I hated the film. And then when I saw it with people enjoying it, I was elated. You know, I saw it, I, I, I knew right then that we had something that was kind of magical. And so, you know, there's that whole aspect of the business of you really never know. It's all how the mood of the moment affects you and affects everybody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. I, I, I kind of have to say that um, in relation to that, um, 
my first actual memory is being in a movie theater at age three watching Back to the Future Part 3 with my parents. And <laughs> my dad took it as a mission as a stay-at-home dad to introduce me to movies as an educational process. And I kind of always tell this story whenever I can. My first R-rated movie was Total Recall at age five. And whenever you see a movie like Total Recall at that young of an age, one, I've become obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger and equally um, pretty much Sylvester Stallone and like the whole Expendables team. But um, like a movie like that visual with the colors and Mars and the violence and everything, it, it, it just kind of like opened the door to me that I said, I, I need to see like more and that's amazing yeah and um my dad you know would sit me in front of the tv and show me stuff and like i developed a huge passion for horror and especially the b-grade stuff b-grade horror b-grade movies sci-fi um in general is is like my my number one favorite genre style movies whether it's sci-fi horror or comedy there's something about the B-grade um, versus, like, you know, the mainstream blockbuster stuff that, while, you know, a lot of that's good, I'm not dissing it. You know, there's something about the B-grade that it takes it, like, a little less seriously, but can take it, like, just as seriously at the same time. And it also, like, allows you, you know, the, the writer and the, the filmmakers, you know, to get away with a little more slack you know on the story that they're trying to tell because usually it's a little more outrageous than something you know that would be on the mainstream and i think that's why you know a lot of your work i'm a huge huge fan of um i mean you know, like bill and ted's excellent adventure was great i love the newest one also but i kind of have to say that Bogus Journey is still my, my number one favorite, and I think it still has the best soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't I can't argue with that. It is you're 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 actually right. That is the the one I think attraction of B movies. I mean, they're they're an opportunity to try different things that you'd never get away with on bigger films. So there's an element of creativity that that sort of surpasses in many respects the the studio films often, but not always, of course. And you know, a lot of Great filmmakers, you know, De Palma, Scorsese, goes on and on and started in like the the confined quarters of places like Corman and, and AIP and all these sort of hash houses, grindhouses, whatever you want to call them. And one of the biggest fans of grindhouse movies is, of course, Tarantino, who even made a film called that or worked on one. I don't know if that was all his, his work. I can't remember now. But you mentioned Total Recall. I just had a little bit of a smile at that because I actually was the first guy approached to produce it but it was a totally different movie back then it was to be directed by bruce beresford who was like this art house director who'd been done tender mercies and trip to bountiful and he was like all about you know heartland dramas and now here he's doing a, this outrageous sci-fi movie and the guy who's going to star in it was mark Harmon, who back at the time was kind of a hunting guy uh, that was 
on the rise, but um, totally different animal. I remember reading the script going like, this is really cool, but it ends so weird. I mean, like they build a Sphinx on Mars and I go, what is that all about? And Beresford goes, I don't know either, but it was just like, that'd be cool to see a Sphinx on Mars. And I remember thinking like, okay, so that's what the, the geniuses think and do when they're making a movie. They just go, well, I don't know what it means, but it'll be cool. Let's do it. <laughs> And I, I sort of took that with me, you know, that, that sometimes that's all a movie needs. Stop trying to justify everything. The Japanese certainly don't. They just make the coolest horror movies by not explaining a damn thing. Right, right. A absolutely. On the subject of B-grade uh, movies, and I think it's a perfect segue, one of the greatest horror franchises that you worked on was uh, the Prophecy movies. I'm glad you point that out because um, it's probably... If you were to ask me up front what, what franchise I'm the most proud of, it would be that one. And um, specifically for all the reasons you talked about your love of, of you know, B-grade and horror movies, as, as you described them, is the, the, and your lament about not seeing anything original, um, that was original. I mean, that was a movie that was unlike any other so-called horror thriller that was out there at the time or before it, it was, you know, for those who don't know, it was a, it was a, a retelling of the, uh, the fall of Satan through, through the, the writings of John Milton, Paradise Lost, how the angel Gabriel played by Christopher Walken sees human beings increasingly as a threat to his preferential treatment by God. And once he fears that humans may be more loved than the angels by God, he rebels, and now he's out to not only eliminate humanity, but create a second hell. And then you have to sort of rope in Lucifer, played wonderfully by Viggo Mortensen, to try to prevent this from happening, only because Lucifer doesn't want to see another hell that he has to compete with. So you have these really strange bedfellows, like some Lacare, you know, espionage Cold War thriller, and, and all these angels are purely drawn from the Old Testament where they're brutal mothers. They, they just slash and kill and rip hearts out and eat them, and they're just bad. Uh, it was just a whole other take on our nation's theological underpinning and obviously offensive to some, although it really doesn't touch upon the blasphemies of is God good or not. Of course he is. He's the light, he, and evil is evil, and it's however it presents itself. So it was so complex, so layered, that it just allowed us to have so many different um, spins on it and, and justify, which we don't always get to do, the making of more sequels that can sort of expound on that and develop the idea over you know the course of geography and, and time. That's that's awesome. Totally agree. That was one of the things that I loved about the franchise. I've seen all of them multiple times. The first one is still probably, I think, my favorite. But seeing the, the progression of the story and flushed out through like five sequels um, was really mm -hmm. interesting. And there's certain like horror franchises that you know are, are you know dear to me. And I'll watch them right to, you know, it, it's, it's just pure trash. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I watched the Leprechaun movies to when, when he went to the hood and then he went back to the hood, you know, which, which I always kind of argue because how could he go back to the hood because he lived at the end of the hood, <laughs> you know, um, but, um, yeah, I'm not going to try to justify that one for you. Right, right. <laughs> 
But, you know, the, the prophecy movies, just the concept, I mean, it's like they, they made that really not-so-good kind of remake of the prophecy with Paul Bettany um, a couple of years ago. Yeah. It was called... Uh, uh, I know what you're talking about. Legion. Legion. That That's what it was right. called. I... And when, it, when I watched it, I'm like, I, I can't even, like, sit through this because this is, like clearly just ripping off the prophecy movie um and as much as i love paul bettany like kicking ass i'm like that that movie is is it was so unoriginal like a lot of the stuff that was coming out at the time that was just pure like ripoffs and and rehashes of like classic movies that you know and some of them like weren't even that old and like they're already like you know recycling the ideas like not in a good way well, that, that's really what kind of, I don't want to say soured me on, on the horror, you know, action genre, but I took a little break from it. I'm actually doing a, a, another one now that's an original I'm kind of fond of, I wrote and producing um, here in Oklahoma right now. But, but I had to take a little time out, and, and the COVID shutdown came at a sort of an opportune time because it really allowed me to sort of reevaluate how I wanted to keep going as a filmmaker, because you're absolutely right. I mean, we have this tendency over and over again to just be rehashing and retreading and re remaking, you know, the same movie. And I just didn't want to keep grinding out wax fruit versions of my original films and, and other people's as well. And so I actually wanted to try taking what I'd learned in the genre and, and adapting it to a different context of story. And I, you know, my favorite thing that I've actually done in the last, 15, 20 years is, is not even a, a genre film at all. It's, it's a movie that's actually just coming out this month called My Best Worst Adventure. And it has on its surface a story just about a kid from L.A. who gets axed out and gets sent to the hinterlands of northern Thailand to live with her crazy grandmother and has to sort of survive both emotionally and physically in this really crazy mixed up environment. But to me, it was my ability to tell a story about a a person landing on an alien planet and how they struggle to survive in a totally different context than all the ones that we've been shoveled at over the years in multitudes. And it was really gratifying because uh, the, we did a festival run that was an awesome thing to watch how people just stood up and cheered and cried and laughed and all that stuff that you really wanted to have that communal experience in a movie theater that's so rare now. And the reviews have been awesome as well. I mean, we're still at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm just fiercely proud of that thing. And it's just inspired me to kind of go, you know what? Horror movies come in all types of baskets, even ones that masquerade as coming-of-age stories. That sort of opened up doors for me that I'm going to keep, keep running through. That's awesome. That's awesome. I kind of feel like I have to share this with you, like, you know, on the topic of, like, the prophecy and everything. I'm currently, I have the first draft done, and it probably still needs, like, one or two more rewrites or edits with it. But um, the prophecy movies, you know, again, were just such, like, a huge, you know, influence on me. And so were, you know, like, a, a lot of other movies. I've basically been writing, it's like a haunted highway script, but it deals very much with like heaven and hell, angels and, and demons and the devil and everything. The script that I, I wrote probably needs like one or two, maybe three more rewrites or edits. But it's basically like a haunted highway 
it's definitely B-grade, like, haunted highway horror action thriller script. And um, it deals with, like, heaven and hell. And it's based on, a little bit on uh, the Faust legends. Mm -hmm. And also, um, ironically, uh, the the legend of uh, Robert Johnson. Like, a haunted highway, um, like, action horror thriller script. And I kind of have like a whole like like a trilogy, with like maybe you know more sequels planned for it, but um I I just I just wanted to share that with you because yeah well uh, that that sounds like something that would attach from uh, my little crucible there and I really wish you luck with it I I think there's still to this day there's still a place for a cool new idea out there in the marketplace and my advice to people always when they're they're talking to me about a script is. And I, it's advice I'd give myself as well. Give it to somebody you don't know who has no investment in saying it's good or bad and ask them to read it. And if they say this blows me away, you're on the right track. But if they're, if they're not blown away, then you got to go back to the drawing board because that's who you're up against are the people that do blow you away. And the problem is your mom and your best friend and all these people are, you know, they're, they're going to encourage you when you really least need the encouragement. Right. I do have to run because I'm being called back to the set, but you have the passion. I can hear it in your voice. You have the ideas. Just keep at it, man. And anybody out there who's also entertaining the notion, just get it written, get it good, get it read. And the more people that read it, the more people that are going to pass it around. And that's how we got Bill and Ted made. It was just a script that got passed around for 10 years. But finally, enough people said, this is awesome, that it got made. I still have faith in that mechanism. Awesome, awesome. Well, Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to swim in the bowl with me. I have a long, long list of stuff to ask you, so um, I'd love to have you on the show again anytime. Well, I'm, as soon as I finish this one, I'm going to want to promote the hell out of it, so we'll talk again. Awesome, awesome. Sounds great. All right, Sam. Great talking to you. You too, you too. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.